0: All right. Well, good morning again. We're going to make our way in our Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so after a couple of weeks through the Easter season of Palm Sunday, as well as Easter last week, we're going to dive back into the first letter to the Corinthians. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. and So as we journey through Acts, we see Paul planting the church there in Corinth. But as he's planted the church in Corinth, he is now receiving letters. He's received word from people within the church that there are struggles. There are challenges that have come up. There's sin in the camp. And so Paul's received these letters, and then he's going to begin to address the issues. And where he starts is in dealing with the philosophy that had permeated its way into the church. For the Greeks, they loved philosophy. In fact, the word philosophy in Greek is phileo, to love, and sophia, wisdom. They they were lovers of wisdom. But Paul wants to make a clear distinction for us as he began this letter that there's a difference between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And in fact, uh, to man, as he is sharing with them the wisdom of God, they're going to think it's foolishness. That the cross of Christ, it sounds like a complete craziness. Why would the God of the universe come and give his life on our behalf? But what Paul shares is, look, for the uh, wisdom of God, it's going to stand the test of time that all other things are going to pass away, but God's wisdom is going to remain. His word will stand. And as he begins to address the issues that are taking place in Corinth in chapters 1 through 4, what we've already covered, Paul picks an interesting place to start attacking their issues because he starts with divisiveness. Of all things for Paul to start with, he starts uh, with this issue of uh, divisiveness. And what Paul addresses is, look, you are all uh, individuals. You all have your own likes and dislikes and gifts, and, and God has created you that way. You've been created diverse. And yet, in the middle of uh, diversity, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given us unity so that we can have unity in uh, this Diversity that we have. So, Paul begins to address this issue of uh, divisiveness that's crept up, and it's crept up in some of the craziest of ways. They had begun to be divided over who's your favorite Bible teacher. I mean, of all things, they're talking about who is your favorite teacher. Oh, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. And then the most dangerous group of all, oh, we just love Jesus. What they're really saying is we're not going to sit under anyone, we're going to stab you in the back the first time we get the chance. And so Paul says, look, this is, this is silliness. In fact, you guys are arguing about who baptized who of all things. Well, I was baptized by Paul, but I was baptized by Peter, so I'm doing so much better. And what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, that uh, we have been made the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. So here's what you guys are fighting over. You're fighting over who is the best off-scouring. This word off-scouring, it, it's like that, uh, that junk that gathers up in the bottom of the bathtub when you've been r- real dirty, Have you washed the dog. This is what Paul is saying. You're arguing about who is the best off-scouring. Who's got the, the nastiest bathtub? I mean, this is how silly this argument is. And what Paul is trying to get at is it's, it's really their own carnality. It's the issue. It's their own being driven by their flesh that's the problem. They're not being directed by the Spirit who unifies, but instead they're being divided because they're listening to their own flesh, their own pride about who's better than who. And so as we arrive now in chapter 5, and we're going to be on this topic for the next couple of chapters, we're going to see that in the previous four chapters, they were uh, divided when they should have been united. But as Paul addresses the topic of uh, sexual immorality, um, they're united when they should have been divided. They should really uh, not uh, go there. And so Paul's going to address this. And what you find is um, they're basically completely confused. They were united when they should have been divided and instead of being uh, united and, and they're divided. And so what Satan does, this is his go-to move, by the way, he always looks to twist the Word of God. He's always looking to confuse us. He's always looking to twist things just enough to get us off track. You might recall the first time we see Satan in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, what does he say? He says to Eve there in the garden, uh, has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree in the garden. His very first move was to question the word of God. Has God really said, is that really what his word was? And so he just takes this and he begins to pervert it. That's what a perversion is. It's a twisted version. It's an alternative version on the word of God. Are you sure God really said that? So Paul, knowing that this perversity has invaded the church, he begins in chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as as it is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And so Paul begins our time today of talking about this report that he's gotten. It's actually reported. In other words, what Paul is saying is all these hundreds of miles away that I've even heard about this. This is common knowledge. People in the church know, people out of the church know. So it's common knowledge that there is sexual immorality. Now the word sexual immorality in the Greek here is the word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. And it covers a litany of sexual immorality and sexual issues, including fornication and really anything that happens outside of the marriage bed that would defile it, including self gratification. So, good morning. Welcome to Woodlawn Chapel. It covers a variety of sins. And this particular sin that he's talking about is uh, that there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. He's not sleeping with his mother. That would obviously be directly incest. But he is sleeping with his stepmom. That's the issue that Paul is bringing up that has been brought to him and now he's commenting on it. And what he says is this thing is not even named among the Gentiles. That even in the Gentiles that are outside the church, they're looking at this thing and they're like, Yeah, that's pretty jacked up. Like you're you're sleeping with your stepmom. And this is saying a lot, because remember, this city of Corinth, I've told you, it's like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I mean, what happened in Corinth stays in Corinth. And even for these people with loose morals, it was said in the ancient world, if you lived a loose moral lifestyle, that you lived like a Corinthian. Even for these people, they're like, yeah, I don't know, that thing is pretty out of bounds. So... How then would the church address it? We're going to look at that, but understand what Satan intends to do by twisting things is he is looking to discredit the message. That the message of the word of God, it's going to stand the test of time. So he knows he can't discredit that. But if he can discredit the messenger or messengers, then he can hope to discredit the message. And surely, you have to imagine, this thing is going to cause waves inside the church. There are going to be people upset, incensed, bothered by this thing. Well, let's go to verse 2 and see how they handled it. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Their response as a church is they were proud of it. They were puffed up like a banny rooster, like, look at us. They didn't even bother ignoring it or sweeping it under the rug or trying to pretend like it didn't happen. No, they were like, look at us. Look at how tolerant we can be. And in our society, um, this is something that is pressing in on us from all sides. In fact, the only thing that we're not to be tolerant of is intolerance. We're to be tolerant of, of everything else. And here, they're actually bragging about their incredible tolerance. All the while... They have a brother in their midst that is getting ready to bust the gates of hell wide open. And so what their tolerance is actually doing is allowing someone, a brother in their midst, to send himself and people who will follow him directly to hell. So a little bit of an issue. Paul continues in verse 3. He says, For, indeed, uh, for I indeed as absent in the body but present in spirit have already judged. And so Paul isn't there with them But what he's saying is, I've already seen this thing. I've heard it as if I were actually there present with you. I've made a decision about this. That him who has done this deed, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus And so Paul's advice on how to handle this situation with this guy who is uh, flaunting his relationship with his stepmom is hand him over to Satan. I mean, that, that seems pretty harsh, Paul. Thank you so much. Turn him over to Satan. But keep in mind what Paul is addressing here is turn him over to Satan, not so that he can be damned for all of eternity, but actually so he can be restored. This is Paul's heart behind this. It's a matter of restoration. Turn this man over so that while his flesh might be subjected to some punishment, his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. He's recommending that this man be put out of the church. Now remember, in this day and age, when you were put out of the church, there was all of that many churches in Corinth. One Christian church. And so to be put out meant he would not have access to a fellowship. He couldn't just uh, pack his bags and go on down to the Baptist church or to the Methodist church or to the Presbyterians. And this is one of the great issues we have with all the denominations that exist. While it's great to have all of the diversity that we have, one of the problems is we never really have to deal with our own sin issues. We can just pack our bags, never deal with the real root problem, and we can just... Go on down to the next church. And so in this spot, Paul's saying, put this guy out so that he will be disconnected from fellowship. So he'll look at his life and realize, I've better make a change. I've got to address this thing that's going on. It's that kind of seriousness. But please note that when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as Paul addresses the church, yet again, they actually listen to the Apostle Paul. They kick this guy out of the church but here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, he says about this punishment, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For, for to this end, I also wrote that you might be put to the test whether you are obedient in all things. What Paul says is, look, you've put him out. The guy now is repentant. Now you need to forgive him. Now you need to welcome him back in as a brother. This is not for you to draw a line in the sand for all of eternity. Restore the guy already. And so the purpose of this is so that one would be restored. And so we have the matter of church discipline is ultimately what Paul is trying to teach them about. But I want to make sure to lay out for you uh, church discipline, how it will look uh, in this church. And I believe Paul does a good job of giving an outline uh, for us to look at. First of all, it's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says right there in verse 4. So what does it look like to operate in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, if you take his name, what you take on is his nature. To take on his name is to take on the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we know about the nature of our Lord and Savior? Luke chapter 6 gives us a little bit of an indication of how Jesus handled things when he had a big decision to make. Luke chapter 6 verse 12. He's getting ready to name the 12 apostles. And now it came to pass in those days that he went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So before Jesus would make a big decision, he would go and pray. And not one of those just lob it out there prayer, Lord, please bless it. No, he spent all night fervently in prayer before he addressed a big decision he had to make. And so the encouragement here for us is as we take on his name and we take on his nature is to bathe that thing in prayer. It needs to be prayed over, prayed through, uh, fervently and intentionally. The second thing to note is they were encouraged to address it using the word of God, that the word of God is our best tool that we have in the toolbox to address situations, to address discipline. And the spot to go for church discipline is Matthew chapter 18. And that is how we address things. And what it says there in Matthew 18, just to give you a synopsis is if a brother is in a spot of wrong like this, we are to go to him individually to go to him one-on-one to address the situation, that this is something that you need to address for your own sake and for the sake of your family. Now, if a brother does not repent, you're to go to him with two or three leaders of the church and to address the same situation and call this brother to repent, to lay this thing down. And finally, and lastly, if a brother is still unrepentant, you're to call him up in front of the entire church to lay this sin issue. And so you can see the grace that exists through the steps, but all this is done in accordance to the Word of God. And it's, va- it's vital for us to apply Scripture in these situations. We can't just avoid the book entirely. And so applying Scripture is the second piece that's key. And then finally, this one is not to be looked over, Paul says in verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with uh, in his name, uh, through his word, and then lastly, by his power, were to address situations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. As Jesus is getting ready to ascend up into heaven, he's addressing the disciples there. And he says in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so how are we to address situations? It's got to be in the power of God, which means we pray for his spirit to be upon us. Lord, please give me words to speak. Please give me the power of your spirit. I don't want to communicate with my own words because here's the reality. When I communicate from my flesh, we have the tendency to go one of two directions. What Warren Wiersbe uh, said, famously quoted, is that um, truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy and for each of us we've got a tendency to go one way or the other either I share you uh, share with you truth with no love and you know that's brutal and if you've ever uh, been around somebody that's one of those brutally honest people for one what I love about brutally honest guy is you know what they hate um, people that are brutally honest with them <laughs> they don't they don't like that at all not even a little bit um, but It it just feels like brutality. It's like getting a good old-fashioned horse whooping. And yet, at the same time, our tendency can be on the other side is to give all love, lovey, 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 with no truth in the middle of it. And all that is is just hypocrisy. What Jesus has called us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit is to give truth uh, in love, to give truth combined together with love the way he addressed situations. John chapter 4, might you might recall a famous spot where Jesus addressed the woman at the well. And as he addresses the woman there at the well, we know about her life is she was living in a tremendous amount of sin. And Jesus asked, hey, where's your husband? And she immediately said, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you're right. You've been married five times, and currently you're living with a dude that you're not married to. And so immediately you're like, "Well, oh, this is awkward. Like, This is going to be a hard situation. And yet, because Jesus shares with her about the, the rivers, the torrents of living water that she can have access to in him, she leaves from that spot praising his name. He told me everything I ever did. Praise the Lord. That's the response of what it looks like to share truth and love. That people cannot wait to share and proclaim his name because it's powerful. It's, it's living. Now, Why on earth is all this so important? Paul says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so what Paul says in verse 6 is that a little bit of leaven will leaven the entire lump. You ladies that cook and use yeast, Uh, know this and understand that just a a pinch of yeast will permeate, will make its way through the entire uh, ball of dough. And what Paul is communicating here is a scriptural truth we see throughout the Old Testament and the New that leaven is always a type of sin. That leaven breaks down, it causes fermentation to happen. And so leaven is used throughout Scripture as a type of sin. But here's the thing about sin in our life is it's always pleasurable for a season. Many of you know the picture that I have up at the top right. You know it all too well. That is a picture of Texas Roadhouse Rolls and cinnamon butter. And I got to tell you, um, it's maybe the greatest thing that's ever happened to me outside of my salvation. It's wonderful, right? Right? Like, you can't wait when those rolls come out. I don't even care about what else they bring for food. Get a steak, get two steaks, let it rip, right? Because these rolls are fantastic. And one is pretty good, but man, if you can get 10 of those bad boys down, you're taking them home with you, right? That's, That's what sin looks like. In fact, nobody, if you showed up and those things tasted like broccoli or asparagus, ain't nobody waiting an hour and a half or two hours to eat a roll that tastes like broccoli. Right? We go because they taste good. And this is what sin looks like in our life. It it tastes so good, it's so pleasurable, and yet it makes me puffy. (laughs) It it makes me a little squishy. And, And so too, the way with sin. You see, often we think sin is sin because it's bad. That's not actually why it's sin. It's sin because it's bad for me. It's bad for me. What James chapter 1 verse 15 says is this, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's grown, brings forth death. That when a little bit of leaven enters in, it begins to break everything down. It enters the whole lump. That's what Paul is communicating here. And eventually it decomposes and leads to Death if it goes undealt with. So Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 7, he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so what we looked at when we covered the Passover on Good Friday is that God commanded them on that night to remove the leaven, to get all the leaven completely out of their house. And what we see now through this is God is encouraging them to pursue holiness, to look for purity, to get it all out. And God, at no point in time when you read through Scripture, is God ever encouraging us to just be almost pure, almost whole. You know what? That's enough Purity for you today. Like, never. God is encouraging us to be completely pure, to be completely holy, to get all the leaven out entirely. And what he's saying here in verses 7 and 8 is, here's Christ, our Passover, sacrifice to you. The blood of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, it's been provided. You can put the blood over your doorpost so that death evades you and your house. And what God is asking for us to do is remove the leaven. He's asking us to go through the cabinet and to go through the cupboard and to get the leaven out of our house. That includes all of the secret stuff, all the hidden stuff, all the stuff that's up there, that's in the cabinet that we go to when we're not having a good day and we're just feeling bad and we're going to apply a little bit of this because haven't I deserved it? Haven't I been a good enough boy? And what God's encouraging us to do is to get it all out and I'm not going to use this analogy to be glib or, or to, to make anybody squeamish, but the reality is for us as a church is we don't have power, um, we don't have real influence because we haven't gotten rid of the leaven and we are instead impotent. We have no power because we haven't dealt with our sin issues. What Jesus instructs in the book of Matthew is this. I'll go there for just a couple minutes. Matthew chapter 16 verse 6. He says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so Jesus is teaching here on leaven. Take heed that you beware. Look out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you've got the Pharisees over here on the far right. They're your conservative, legalist, holier than thou group. And Jesus is saying, beware of all that that's going on. But then on the other side, he says, beware of the Sadducees. They're your liberals, your materialists, the ones that just, hey, let it rip. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Group, and Jesus is instructing we are to beware the leaven of both of these camps. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, as he's specifically addressing the Pharisees, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside of them may be clean also. And so the encouragement of Christ here is we're to clean the inside first. That it's our tendency to, to gussy it up, to look pretty on the outside, to make sure we got our Jesus smile going on when we get to church but what he's encouraging us to instead do is deal with the inside. Cleanse the inside first, and then the outside is going to follow suit. It's going to be no problem whatsoever. Finally, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus, I'll pick up in verse 17. He says, Do you yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Verse 18, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemy. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the issue here is, are we willing to cleanse and to address what's happening on the inside? Because I will tell you that a church that is pure is a church that is powerful. It doesn't matter the number of people. A congregation this small, heck, smaller than this, can be incredibly powerful inside our community if we're willing to be purified, if we're willing to get the leaven out. Now, we continue in verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, And yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. And so Paul's encouragement here as he begins, he, he first I want to note that he mentions another epistle. We don't have that letter. So that's a letter that we don't have. But what we do have is Paul saying, in that previous letter, I addressed sexual immorality to you, but I want to be clear what I was talking about. I wasn't talking about not associating it all with the world because our tendency is uh, we want to just hide. We want to just go in our holy huddle. and I'm not going to let the outside world touch me. But here's the thing. How are you going to be a light to the world if you don't go out into the world? You're going to have to go get your feet dirty to interact with people to lead them to Jesus. What Paul is saying is, I don't want you to conduct yourself with sexually immoral people that consider themselves a brother, one that is inside the camp, that is proclaiming the name of Christ, and yet they're not just struggling with sin. I want to point that out. There's a difference between struggling with sin. Everybody in this room is struggling with some kind of a sin issue. It's not the struggling. It's the blatant, outright practicing, I don't give a rip, I'm going to let it happen and be proud of it, sin that he's saying you cannot associate yourself with such a person. And so Paul is addressing this. And what he's saying is, uh, why would you want to... associate yourself with one who is practicing sin openly. But instead, he gives a couple of things for us to consider. First of all, he wants uh, the offender to be corrected. That there's a desire for the one who is offended, the one who is sinning, to come back to, to Jesus, to have correction in their life. Now, can you imagine if this next week uh, you go to visit the doctor, you've got some pain going on, and they do the MRI and they come back and they're like, you know what, you've got a tumor inside you that is growing. It's cancerous. It's going to kill you. Uh, But then the doctor says, hey, you know what, though? I'm not going to do anything about it. I mean, I don't want to inflict any pain on you. I mean, after all, it's just a tumor. You'll probably die, but I'm just not willing to do anything. You're going to say... What a quack. What a -a wackadoo. I'm going to go get a second opinion, a third, a fourth, somebody to operate on this thing. And so too we have the issue where we don't want to offend. We don't want to upset. And yet what we know about the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is powerful. It is living, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so the Word of God is a scalpel. It's there to cut away the cancerous thing. It's there to take this thing completely out of our life, so that we can live. The second reason to address this practicing of sin outside of the offender coming back to Christ and being corrected is that when a part of the body suffers, the entirety of the body suffers. This applies to us individually in our body and it applies to us corporately as a church body and even bigger universally as a church at large. That when there is a portion of the body suffering, all the body suffers. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it out from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell. That seems harsh. Yet that's Jesus instructing us on how to deal with sin. He's not telling us to go around like a bunch of one-eyed, one-legged, one-armed pirates. Arr, matey. That's not at all his point. His point is, you need to deal with sin with that kind of viciousness. Literally to cut it out. Because as the part of the body goes, as the eye goes, so goes the rest of the body. As the hand goes, so goes the rest of the body. And the same is true with us here internally. That as a part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And, by the way, this is one of the biggest misconceptions about sin that Satan has ever sowed. It really only affects me. Sin never only affects you. There is always fallout. It always affects other people. And usually those closest to us, the ones we love and care about, And so we see sin permeating its way into our families, into our congregations, and the encouragement here is to deal with it. For those of us that hang around, you've heard the adage, you become like the five people you hang around with the most. And so, as you hang around these kind of things, it shouldn't be a surprise that then we become affected by that we We become drawn to that as we hang around with one another. That's why Jesus is so adamant about his bride being purified. now, back to the last couple of verses. we're almost there. I promise verse twelve for what i have uh, what for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Notice in all these 13 verses that never one time is the woman mentioned. And I I say that because I believe that Paul doesn't bring her up or her uh, situation because likely she's not a member of the church. She's likely not a believer. So he's addressing this one who is so prominent there in the church because he is a leader there. He is one who is out there in front of the public. And why is that so important? Well, here's what 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, that the judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Where judgment is to begin is in God's house first. And yet, what we so often want to do as a church as we want to judge everybody else. What's the world doing? What's the world up to? We got the Fox News is on and the MSNBC's on and we're complaining about everything the world is up to. We're looking to pass judgment on the world. Here's a little tip don't be surprised if the world acts like the world. That's what they do. They're going to continue. And yet for us, we're called to judge inside out. Judgment starts right here. It starts in me individually, and then it flows from there out. Now, what the world will often say, if they're feeling judged, is this, don't judge me, man. Bible says, don't judge lest ye be judged. It's amazing from children's church how much people that don't follow Jesus can still hang on to and retain. Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, you know what? That is very true. The Bible does, in fact, say that. The problem for us as believers is if we don't know enough of our Bible, we hear that and then immediately we're shut down. But the reality is that's from one of the famous 80s hair bands to ever play a Twisted Scripture. Maybe you've heard of them. And so uh, Twisted Scripture said that. But if you go back and you look at the verse in its context, here's what Jesus actually said. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. So there you go. But it continues, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will be able to clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's the verse in its context. And so it's not that we're called not to judge, it's that we are called to first judge ourselves, to look inwardly, to look and remove the plank that is in our own eye. Jesus intentionally being dramatic about this, but what he's saying is you've got this big old two-by-four hanging out of your eye, and yet you want to go pick the speck, the little splinter out of your brother's eye. And so I'm called to first deal with my sin before I address the sin of a a brother or a sister around me. And notice in the analogy Jesus gave, um, the plank and the speck were the same material why is that so important? Well, here's the thing. Um, My sin on you always looks way worse. I I can see it so clearly. It looks so much worse on you than it does on me. But I'm called to remove that big old whopper first so that I can clearly see and so I can actually have empathy for you. I can come alongside you and go, man, brother, I've dealt with that. I'm dealing with that. I'm in the midst of this spot. Let me come alongside you and help you. It's amazing how the perspective changes when we can open up with one another and say, I've had a whopper in my life. Let me tell you how God dealt with me in that spot. And then we can come alongside and actually be an encouragement to one another. So we are called to, to deal first with our sin before we ever begin to address the sins of the outside world. And so what I wanted to close with today is just to encourage you in this, that there is no amount of legislation that can be passed to legislate the heart of people. It doesn't matter how many laws, how many rules, how many regulations, how many things I put in place in my household or in this county or in my workplace, I cannot legislate a person's heart. But what we can do is we can bring him to the one who can change the heart. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is the final spot I'll go this morning. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that what I can do is I can lead people to the God who can change them from the inside out. And that's a change that no law can stop, (laughs) that no amount of legislation can can put down, that then in this spot, as we become a bunch of transformed people, uh, the world can't possibly hold it back. And so, Father, I thank you And I praise you for the opportunity to come and to be purified, Lord. The song that kept playing over and over again in my mind this morning was, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. So Father, please make us a sanctuary, a place where your spirit can dwell, where the leaven is purged, where we can have real effective conversations because you've dealt with us effectively. Lord, help us to be a church that is powerful, that is pure, that is true. Father, I lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.